Let us open the precious Word of God to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6. I thank the Lord and I thank the men that have gone before me, before the service and in this service, that have brought you the Word of God and worship helps to cause us to think upon things above and not on things on the earth. We're studying the assurance of eternal life, and it's the time in our worship to come to the Word of God. And so I have some things to share with you from the Word of God today that some of you know parts of, and I want all of you to know these things so that unlearned and unstable men cannot rest them to your destruction or the overthrow of your faith or the frightening of your soul. The assurance of eternal life. This is my final point. We'll see if we can cover it today. My final point is that damnation, eternal damnation, the second death, the lake of fire, is most certainly limited in the Bible to those that God has rejected, reprobated, and did not choose to save, so that those that God did choose to save should have no fear of it. It cannot touch them. The Bible does not threaten you with the lake of fire. For those that have put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, the promise is, they shall never be ashamed. They shall never be confounded. They shall never perish. And so we want to remember that. In Hebrews chapter 6, which you read last evening, I want to limit myself just to the last three verses to encourage you from this place as well as Romans 5 that I began with a few minutes ago, as well as Romans 8 that I wrote you about in the preparatory email that greatly affected me last evening, along with some other things. I thank God through Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit that is able to come upon us at times and make the Word of God come refreshingly alive. In in verses that I have read many, many times, but God is so gracious to give them new life and to quicken me that uh, they can be so more appreciated than possibly before. In Hebrews chapter 6, Closing out the chapter, the last three verses, the apostle writes that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast and which entereth into that within the veil, whither the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus, made an high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. If something is immutable, it cannot change. Mutation is change. Immutable is no change. There were two immutable things from the God that cannot lie about our eternal life. 
God promised eternal life before the world began. And to add some solemnity to that promise, He swore with an oath. When we have controversies, such as in our courts, witnesses are sworn to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help me God. We swear by the highest authority in the universe, in this God-hating nation, they still use that oath in certain places, with a left hand in the Bible, and the right hand raised to heaven, so help me God. Yes. We swear by the highest authority we can. Well, because God could swear by no higher authority, He swore by Himself, saying, Surely, blessing, I will bless thee. That is swearing by Himself. And so there are two immutable things that we might have a strong consolation And you ought to be consoled. You ought to have strong consolation. And you ought to flee for refuge to lay hold upon hope that has been set before you. I have preached it to you for 12 sermons. And this is number 13 on this subject of the assurance of eternal life. A refuge is a place to hide. You can lay hold upon this hope by faith because it is laid out in the pages of Scripture, and I have laid it out to you, it's been set before you. It's been set before me. Let us flee to that refuge of the hope that we have that is in Christ Jesus. Now this hope is described in verse 19 as an anchor of the soul. Don't let your soul be tossed about, up and down, back and forth. Don't let your soul be frightened. Run with faith and hide yourself in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because we have an anchor. And that anchor is not bouncing along the bottom of the lake, trying to find a place to lodge itself, to keep your boat safe. That anchor is both sure and steadfast. It is not moving. Because Jesus Christ is not quitting. Jesus Christ will not be impeached. Jesus Christ will not be cast out of heaven because God has accepted Him. He is God's beloved Son. And He sits at God's right hand, having already taken the book of the everlasting covenant out of the hands of God, and He is an everlasting Savior. He is sure and steadfast, and that hope enters into that within the veil. That means in the very presence of the living and true God. The God that young Adam told you about from Psalm 97 has an opening made by the Lord Jesus Christ and He is there for us and He is sure and steadfast. He is our hope and He is our refuge and He is the strong consolation because God has promised salvation by Him, and God has sworn with an oath in Him. Verse 20, inside the veil, that is in the very presence of God, there is a forerunner. There is someone who has already finished his race, and he has sat down, crowned with glory and honor, and it's the Lord Jesus Christ. And He is called the forerunner, Because He has gone before 
the rest of the runners. And he will bring us all safely to God. He is the forerunner. Even Jesus, made an high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That expression, and high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, is throughout this book of Hebrews. Because the Apostle Paul was asking Hebrew believers to forsake Moses, forsake the temple, forsake the Levitical priesthood, forsake the altar, forsake the sacrifices, and instead trust a Savior and a high priest from another tribe, the tribe of Judah, who was made according to Psalm 110, a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Inside the veil, there was a veil in the Old Testament worship, and the high priest got to go inside it only once a year, and he had to take blood inside that veil for his own sins. And only once a year. But we have a forerunner inside the veil of heaven itself, not some ridiculous little tent here on earth, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. And He is our refuge. He is our hope. He is our strong consolation. He is the anchor for our soul, along with the fact that God has promised eternal life before the world began. Titus chapter 1 and verse 2, in the performance of the Lord Jesus Christ. Your salvation is sure. Run to Christ and hide. That's why it says, those who have fled for refuge, run to Christ. You run to Him by faith. You put other things away and you get in your closet. You get wherever you can be alone and you run to Christ and beg Him for mercy and fall upon Him by faith and believe Him and embrace Him in love and say, Lord, what wilt Thou have me to do? You're inside the veil with Him. He's your forerunner. He's your hope. He's the anchor for your soul. May God calm every troubled soul to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. A high priest for how long? Forever. After the order of Melchizedek. No beginning of days. No end of days. Forever. I was overcome last evening. And I wish I could have assembled all of you at once. And I would have preached from Hebrews chapter 7. The next chapter in this book. For it describes the glorious priesthood of Melchizedek as fulfilled by the Lord Jesus Christ. That would have followed me preaching to you Romans chapter 8. I was a little messed up. Oh, I thank God for messing me up from time to time. I'd like you now to turn over to Hebrews chapter 10. I want another C word. Other than consolation. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 35. Cast not away therefore your confidence, which hath great recompense of reward. For ye have need of patience, that after ye have done the will of God, ye might receive the promise. The only way you can lose your confidence is to cast it away. 
He has said too much. Everything he says is true. Every true thing he has said that is important to us regarding salvation, he has confirmed with an oath. You're allowing your feelings too much sway. You're allowing your imagination, your thoughts, too much room. Don't cast away your confidence. Lay hold of the promises that God has made and the priesthood that you have in the Lord Jesus Christ and that anchor for your soul. What's an anchor for but to keep the boat from moving? To keep it in one place. And you have that in the Lord Jesus Christ. Run to Him for your refuge and don't cast away your confidence because confidence hath great recompense of reward. Your confidence is an increased measure of faith and it will bear fruit in eternal life. You have a little need of patience that after you've done the will of God, you will receive the promise. Come back to Hebrews chapter 3 with me. Hebrews chapter 3. There's one brother at least in here that wants me to preach the epistle of Hebrews this morning. There's 13 chapters in it. Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 6. But Christ as a son over his own house. Whose house are we? We are Christ's house. We are Christ's building. We are Jesus Christ's body. If we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. That is the evidence of eternal life. You don't earn your way into Christ's house by your confidence and the rejoicing of hope firm to the end, because these are gifts of the Holy Spirit given to you by regeneration, but let them increase. Ask God to increase them. Look into His Word. Get some music that praises the Lord Jesus Christ and let it feed your soul and take you away from the 168 hours of filth and degradation, distraction and devilish diversions of this world. Verse 14, For we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. The evidence of eternal life is holding the beginning of our confidence steadfast. There were Jews, Hebrew believers, in Hebrews chapter 10 that had cast away their confidence. They were getting shaky. And they didn't need to get shaky. Because we have a strong refuge and an anchor for our souls. In the Lord Jesus Christ. Run to Him. Run to Him. You can run to Him right now. And when we let out of this place, and you can get away from the rest of us, and there is a time for that, to get away from the rest of us, and you run to the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't run to your activities. Don't run to your little life in this world. Run to Christ, and He'll increase your consolation and your hope and the anchor for your soul. The devil is very angry that Jesus Christ, a man, saved you, another man. But Jesus is going to send him to hell. Because he's angry, he's doing all he can to discourage you. And so he throws fiery darts at your soul, even from the Word of God. And I'm going to deal with some of those from the Word of God today. And I want to teach you the Word of God and how we rightly divide it so that these fiery darts can be resisted with truth, faith, salvation, and Scripture. Four aspects of the armor and weapons of God found in Ephesians chapter 6. 
If verses in the Bible sound like you could lose your salvation, it's your misunderstanding of them. There are no verses like that. Your salvation is sure. It's been taught thoroughly. You should know that. God has promised. God cannot go back. God cannot tell a lie. God swore with an oath. Jesus Christ is the high priest that will save you. And He is that high priest forever. He is able to save to the uttermost. It is not your ability. It is His ability. He is able to save to the uttermost all that come unto God by Him. Then run to Christ. And you'll find your complete salvation there. There's not a verse in the Bible that declares, hints, or threatens the elect with loss of their eternal life. And they need to be properly understood. Ignore the heretics that want you to believe and teach, or that they want to believe and teach that you can lose eternal life. In many cases, they cannot even figure out the doctrine of baptism. So reject their corruption. Of God's doctrine. Look at 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. The Catholics tell us that the New Testament wasn't put together until their councils at Carthage and other cities near the opening of the 5th century. 397 and 400 A.D. But listen to Peter in 60 A.D. In verse 16 of 2 Peter chapter 3. As also, he's speaking of his beloved brother Paul. He's speaking of our apostle. That's in verse 15. As also in all his epistles. Interesting. As also in all his epistles. Speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, as they do also the other scriptures, unto their own destruction. So what is Peter saying about Paul's epistles that he's referring to? Is he referring to the epistle to the Laodiceans? No. He's referring to the epistles of Paul that are Scripture. And he said how many of them? Yes. All his epistles. But they rest them. That means they pervert them. They corrupt them. They twist them. They misuse them to their own destruction. And some of those verses that are hard to be understood by the Apostle Paul pertain to salvation. I use in a general way. And some think that eternal life can be lost. Do you understand that there are many that believe eternal life can be lost? From the great mother herself, you know, you can lose eternal life. You need to make sure that you're taking care of the seven sacraments and you take care of them right up to the moment of your death. And then you need to have a widow buying some candles and having some masses said for you after that to make sure. But thanks be to God, we're going to rightly divide the word of truth and solve these Bible riddles or problem texts, if you want to call them that. Since you're at 2 Peter, come back to the first chapter and let's remind ourselves of a simple fact about the Bible. In 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 20, it is talking about the word of prophecy, verse 19, 
it is talking about Scripture in verse 20 that holy men of God gave by the Holy Ghost in verse 21. I want the 20th verse for the first rule of Bible study. Knowing this first. Knowing this first. That no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. There is nothing revealed in Scripture that can be understood separate, unique, set apart privately from the rest of the New Testament and the Bible. Everything must fit the whole Bible. When we look at these verses, we already know that Jesus Christ said He would not lose a single one of those the Father had given Him. None shall be separated from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Who shall charge anything to God's elect? Romans 8.33 Who is he that condemneth? Romans 8.34 Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Romans 8.35 Because there is no one. I love those who's. Three who questions in Romans 8.33-35 through 35. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Who is he that condemneth? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? There is no angel in heaven or devil in hell that can separate you from Christ, nor lay anything to your charge, nor condemn you. Salvation is certain. So when we happen upon these verses that appear to teach that you can lose eternal life, we first of all know they cannot be teaching that. We second of all look in the context to understand what point is being made by the Holy Ghost. We are told to rightly divide the word of truth in 2 Timothy 2.15, and so we do that. Hezekiah raised up Levites and priests to teach the people in every city throughout Israel when he was king throughout Judah. And it's described in 2 Chronicles 19, verses 5-11, through 11, that they were supposed to separate between precept and statute, between law and commandment. Between blood and blood. You know, when they had one family going against another family, they were to judge betwixt the two. And they were to do it in the fear of the Lord, and they were to do it with their understanding of Scripture. And they were to set at, and they were to reconcile law and commandment. They could have one party bringing one law of God interpreted one way, and they could have another party coming with a commandment of God interpreted a different way that would appear to contradict, and they were to reconcile them. Right. That's rightly dividing the word of truth. It's a wonderful passage in 2 Chronicles 19. I do not have time to take you there as I had hoped. Let's look at an easy one and get started. Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. This is an easy one. I know it's an easy one. But it's a popular one. And so let's deal with it. Thank you, Lord, for strong consolation and an anchor for our soul and hope that enters into that within the veil where our forerunner is already entered for us, even Jesus. We don't want there to be any mistaking on who it is. It's not Mary, and it's no saint. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. And He is there forever a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 4. Here comes along a little sheep. One of Christ's sheep. Even without a false teacher causing his heart to tremble, he happens upon the text. Christ 
is become of no effect unto you. Whosoever of you are justified by the law, ye are fallen from grace. In the tender little soul and heart of this little sheep of Christ, he knows, she knows, he has sinned. He has sinned repeatedly. She has sinned. Surely, that must be falling from grace. Obviously, falling from grace is possible. And so the little sheep is frightened. And along come false teachers that undo their anchor and sever the chain. And their boat is afloat upon the seas of life and the storms of their feelings and thoughts. And they think that they have fallen from grace. Christ has become of no effect. Though they had once believed upon Christ, and though they had once believed that Jesus had died to put away all their sins, the apostles said, you can fall from grace, and Christ is no longer of any effect for you. Do you understand? Do you know that there are whole congregations that believe this text the way I'm explaining it right now? And unless you confess your sins and get saved again or restored to Christ, and restored to God's grace, if you were to die at this moment, you would go to hell. What does the verse mean? It's such a simple one. You know, we know what it doesn't mean. We know it doesn't mean that you can fall out of God's grace because Jesus said, I won't lose a single one of them. God said, you can't be separated from my love, which is in Christ Jesus. So, now this is as simple as it gets. Two-step approach to Bible interpretation. First, keeping the first rule of Bible study we know what the verse cannot mean. It cannot mean that you can fall out of God's gracious plan where he promised eternal life before the world began and confirmed it with an oath because that would overthrow Hebrews chapter 6 and there isn't any overthrowing of Scripture. Christ has become of no effect unto you. What does it mean? Very simply, Paul, writing to Galatian churches that had been infected by Jewish legalists, who were teaching that they needed to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses in order to be saved. That is what this epistle is about. Writing to that kind of an audience, Paul means the sense of these words are this. Those of you who think you are justified by the law have lost the understanding of grace I taught you and you make Jesus Christ saving death worthless in your theology. Christ is become of no effect unto you. It's not to everyone. It's only to a select few. Whosoever of you are justified by the law. No one can be justified by the law. No one can be saved by Moses' law. It is in their thinking that they think that they can be justified by Moses' law, and by thinking that they can be justified by Moses' law, they have made the death of Christ of no value or worth or purpose or role. So he has become of no effect. You don't need anything to do with Jesus Christ since you believe that you are justified by the law. You are fallen from the grace that I taught you. And that goes right back to chapter 1 and verse 6. Look, Galatians 1, 6. I marvel... Please, this is so simple. Right. <laughs> I marvel, Galatians 1.6, that ye are so soon removed from Him that called you into the grace of Christ 
unto another gospel. The doctrine that I taught you people was that Jesus saved you. And now you've let these Jewish legalists come in and teach you you got to be circumcised like them. These are Gentiles. you got to be circumcised like them and you got to keep the law of Moses in order to be saved. If you believe that, if you think that you can get to heaven by keeping the law of Moses, then Jesus Christ has no place in your doctrine, nor does the grace of God. For if it's by works, then it's not of grace. Because if it's by grace, it's not of works. These are incompatible concepts. Galatians 5, 4. Listen, do you, have a, do you have a few goosebumps? God has been so gracious to us, not only to save us, but to save us from verses like that. Amen. And to save us from false teachers that use verses like that. Much more could be said about this text. I hope I've said enough. Do you think that Jesus Christ's death on the cross can become of none effect for someone he died for? That is impossible. But can Jesus Christ be rendered worthless by your foolish thinking about some foolish doctrine? Yes. It's that simple. Lord, thank you. Rejoice with me, brethren. Hebrews 6. I believe that all of you who have prepared and have come passionately today, Hebrews 6, 18 through 20, was music to your ears. And you delighted in every syllable over there. The, the sure and steadfast and the consolation, the hope and the forerunner. And you love those things. Well, still love them because Galatians 5, 4 doesn't say a thing against them. That anchor is still sure and steadfast. Amen. There are whole denominations in our country that believe you can lose your salvation every time you sin. <laughs> How many times did you lose it yesterday? Thank you, Lord. Do you understand that God wrote a book of 31,101 verses to comfort you? You say, how can He comfort me with Galatians 5.4? By giving you 2 Peter 1.20 and giving you 2 Timothy 2.15. 2 Peter 1.20 said, knowing this first, that Galatians 5.4 does not have some different interpretation from the rest of the Bible. And 2 Timothy 2.15, rightly divide the word of truth or you'll be ashamed in your doctrine. Thank you, Lord. Is that he? Is the, praise, praise the Lord. I hope that there are young men in this assembly that God loves, and they love God and they delight in Him, and they will feed on everything that comes out of this pulpit, whether it's me or anyone else, and that they will set their hearts and minds, that they will defend the truth and teach the truth and live the truth. So help me, God. Amen. That this church and its doctrine will not leave the earth until the Lord Jesus Christ comes. So that when Jesus said, when the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth, it could be rewritten. When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth outside of Greenville, South Carolina. Not for our glory. All for his. But let's not cast away our confidence. And let's have a bunch of zealots in this church right down to our youngest boys that can understand what I'm saying, that the truth is indeed precious. And that God has shown us views of verses that reconcile them all together for the glory of Jesus Christ and the assurance of eternal life. I could stay at that verse and give you more to think about, but I've given you enough. I hope. 1 Corinthians 15. Here comes another one. 
Yesterday, I read a website built around this text that you can lose eternal life. This text. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you. This is the Apostle Paul to the saints at Corinth. Achaia, Greece. Which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand. By which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. A believer comes along and reads verse 2 and says, Sometimes I forget some of the things of Christ, and I get reminded of them. I wonder if I have believed in vain. I wonder if I've lost my salvation that's mentioned in the first clause of this verse because I can't keep it in memory. Maybe I'm one of the ones that have believed in vain and lost my salvation. Or they think to themselves, what if I forget these things? What if in the future I lose my mind and I'm unable to keep these things in memory? I will have believed in vain and I will lose my salvation. We agree that you can lose your salvation by forgetting what Paul preached. But the salvation under consideration is not eternal life. The salvation under consideration is the hope of the resurrection of the physical body. There are 58 verses in this lengthy chapter, and every single verse in this chapter is about the resurrection of the physical body of believers. Every verse. There are some chapters in the Bible that have one theme, or one preeminent theme. This has one theme. The resurrection of the body. If a believer that was baptized, and what does baptism mean? It means that Jesus was buried and rose again for our sins, that we are burying our old man to rise to walk in newness of life, and that if I am buried physically, because my spirit departs to be with the Lord, He is coming back, and though my body is buried, He will raise it again in the last day. So these Corinthians had been baptized in the hope of the resurrection of the dead. Verse 29 appeals to that fact. But if you forget that, if you forget that there is a resurrection of the dead and a future life in heaven, to be a Christian is to be the most miserable person on earth. Verse 19 of this chapter. If in this life only, now all of his arguments up to this point, all 18 verses are about the resurrection of the dead. And after this verse, all the verses are about the resurrection of the dead. If in this life only, see that's no resurrection of the dead for another life. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. What you have lost in verse 2 is hope that extends beyond this life. If the gospel only covers hope in this life, we as Christians who are denying ourselves day after day, who deny ourselves worldly lusts and worldly pleasures, we are of all men most miserable. Christianity without the future hope of the resurrection is the worst religion on earth. It isn't really. But that's the apostle's hyperbolic argument. Because if you keep God's commandments only with hope in this world, 
you still have the best way to live that no man has ever conceived of. But the apostle is just pointing out with a very strong statement that if you reduce Christianity to hope just now in this life, you have cut away its better part. Because the better part is after the resurrection of the dead. And and you can lose that by forgetting what Paul preached to you. Verse 2. By which also ye are saved. Saved from what? Saved from a miserable existence in life by not knowing about the resurrection of the dead. By which also ye are saved. The gospel. And he goes right on and explains in verses 3 and 4 what the gospel is. How that Christ died for our sins. That he was buried. Verse 4. And that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. That resurrection is all important for us to have hope in the next life. So, 1 Corinthians 15.2 isn't talking about you losing eternal life. It's talking about you losing the right perspective of the gospel and ending up without the hope of heaven. Because this church had false teachers in it that were teaching them that there was no resurrection of the dead. Verse 12, Now if Christ be preached that He rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? This church had false men in it that were teaching and saying that there was no resurrection of the dead. And if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. If Christ is not risen, our sins haven't been put away. And if Christ is not risen, we aren't going to rise. And there is nothing after this life. Eat, drink, and be married. And he teaches that in verses 30 through 32. The doctrine of the Epicureans. Nope, that's all 1 Corinthians 15, 2 means. But I found this website built all around this verse that you can lose eternal life. This isn't talking about eternal life. How do we know that? Because rule number one, 1 Corinthians 15, 2 doesn't overthrow the rest of the Bible that says that God promised eternal life before the world began and swore with an oath and also by an oath made Jesus a priest after the order of Melchizedek forever. And on and on and on it goes. We can never be separated from His love. This salvation right here is the fourth phase of salvation. We can lose our confidence in the gospel of an afterlife with the Lord Jesus Christ forever. I could say much more. It's been said before. But hopefully I said enough. You say, hmm, interesting. So the word salvation here just really means our hope of the resurrection to spend eternity with God. <laughs> yeah, that's a pretty big salvation, isn't it? Amen. Just to have that hope. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, that hope is stolen and taken away. Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. I hope I've said enough. If I haven't said enough, there will be an outline. There already is an outline on the website with more about 1 Corinthians 15.2, or there will be. Matthew chapter 24 and verse 13, But he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. What does that say about those that do not endure unto the end? They shall not be saved. But he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. This is a candy cane of Calvinists. This is the verse, one of their chief verses, if not their chief verse, where they teach the perseverance of the saints. That is, that God has so ordained that His elect will all persevere in faith and be saved. 
We don't believe in the perseverance of the saints. We believe in the preservation of the saints. That God shall preserve them by His grace in Christ Jesus, and they can never be separated from His love, but they certainly can vary in this world in their degrees of conversion from Abraham to Lot. From Samuel to Samson. From David to Solomon. What does the text mean? Well, is there a context usually to verses? Always to verses. There's a context. And this simple little rule of Bible interpretation. A text without its context is a pretext. That's a false illusion of error. A text without its context. If you were to walk past me talking to some brother this morning and you heard me say I beat my wife last night, you could go to your pew with your mind imagining all sorts of things. Would it be with a stick or a belt? When in fact, I beat her in a 5K. (laughs) That is not true yet. (laughs) Hopefully. Context! Context! What is the end that is being described in Matthew chapter 24? The end of the temple and the end of Jerusalem, the destruction of Jerusalem that would come on that generation. And those believers that believe the message of the Lord Jesus Christ warning them about it, when they saw the armies encompass Jerusalem, they would flee to the mountains exactly as he describes right here in this context, and they would be saved. If they were to ignore the false teachers that were going to arise, saying Christ is here and Christ is there, they would be saved. And so he that endureth to the end, the same shall be saved. It is limited to those Jews that heard Jesus, warned them about the destruction that was coming upon Jerusalem, that if they would endure through the trials, tribulations, wars, rumors of wars, earthquakes and pestilences, and everything else that is described in this context, they would be saved. If we believe you have to endure to the unto the end to be saved, what do we do with Lot? Or are you going to say Lot did a fine job of enduring? He was still alive in the cave. Is that what you're going to tell me? He was still alive in the cave with his two pregnant daughters? Pregnant by incest? No. We have a perfect explanation right here in the context. And using this verse outside of its context is a pretext and it doesn't even have anything to do with eternal life. So don't read anybody that... Brethren... The Lord has given us all these little bottles to put on the mantle. And there's this little bottle labeled Matthew 24, 13. If you're reading some big, thick volume by some Puritan or Calvinist, and you find that he can't even figure out Matthew 24, 13, what can he figure out? That is one of the simplest verses in the Bible. Do you think for some reason that in the midst of describing the signs that were going to precede the destruction of Jerusalem and the characteristics of the destruction of Jerusalem, that Jesus all of a sudden took a great leave of absence and went running off on a rabbit trail having to do with eternal life and whether you're going to keep it or not? That is impossible. 
First of all, because no one is going to lose eternal life that Jesus Christ gave eternal life to. Eternal life is not in the text. There isn't any eternal life in Matthew chapter 24. It is very specifically limited to the temple that Jesus and His disciples were looking at and they were admiring. And so He explained to them, don't be so impressed. Every stone is going to be pulled down until there are not two stones attached. And it's going to come on this generation. And if you will endure, and these apostles that were hearing Him speak, they did endure a great deal of persecution and trouble. But I'll tell you something, they understood the message differently than Calvinists understand it. Because when Peter preached in the day of Pentecost, the part of the sermon that you get to read in Acts chapter 2 is relatively small. Because the rest of his sermon is summarized this way in Acts chapter 2 and verse 40. And with many other words. This is Pentecost. And with many other words did he testify and exhort saying, Save yourselves from this generation. Does that help? Isn't that wonderful? See, Peter knew what Matthew 24, 13 was about. And so do the rest of the apostles. It's too bad the Calvinists can't figure it out. But you know, most Calvinists are baby sprinklers because they never left Rome. So they can't figure out baptism. We shouldn't be surprised they can't figure out Matthew 24, 13. And to the degree that I am making fun of them, they deserve every bit of the fun I am making of them. And I am doing it for the strength of your confidence and consolation in your understanding of the Word of God. So that when you happen upon somebody with a great big name like John Kelvin, you won't be intimidated because you know he couldn't even figure out baptism and he couldn't figure out Matthew 24, 13. And so Peter said, in many other words, save yourselves from this untoward generation. And Jesus said in verse 34 of this chapter, verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. So Peter knew Matthew 24, 13, didn't he? It doesn't have a thing to do with eternal life. Do you have strong consolation and hope in the Lord Jesus Christ right now? Cast not away your confidence. If you will gird yourself up with the armor that is described in Ephesians chapter 6, if you'll put on truth, if you'll put on the righteousness He's given you, if you'll put on the helmet of salvation, if you'll take the Word of God, if you'll hold up the shield of faith, you can quench all the fiery darts of the wicked, and you can be absolutely confident that your name is in the book of life, and you have eternal heaven waiting for you, because you have a lawyer and a mediator and a great high priest that God swore with, oh, don't, don't get me on Hebrews 7, or there's going to be no break today. There is a high priest in heaven who was made a high priest with an oath. No priest had ever been made with an oath before in the history of Israel except the Lord Jesus Christ of Nazareth with Psalm 110. He's inside the veil for you in the presence of God, appearing there for you. You shall never be lost. We have a brother. We have a high priest. We have a mediator. He loves us. Our names are inscribed in His hands, the Bible tells us. Our names are in the book of life, and it's the book of life of the Lamb slain. And you know what our mediator is the son of the judge. 
I can meet that judge, though I have more sins than the rest of you and greater. I can meet that judge because Jesus Christ, my Lord, the forerunner, my hope, my consolation, my Savior, my brother, who's not ashamed to call me his brother, is at the right hand of God, ever living to make intercession for me. He is going to confess me before my Father in heaven because I have confessed him on earth. Will you confess him on earth and tell everyone in here as you have opportunity that you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? Jesus Christ will confess you before his Father in heaven. Matthew 10, 32. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. Amen. Amen.